Hello and welcome to the It's Not Personal podcast, a podcast about making work more engaging, more fulfilling, and ultimately more human by taking the ego out of leadership. I am here with Ken Grady, a Fortune 500 CIO and business leader, as well as gentleman farmer and snappy dresser. And I'm here with Seth Rigoletti, my always friend and often collaborator and co-conspirator. Seth is an executive and communications coach who's worked with a number of different organizations and whose superpower is helping people understand the difference between what's being said and what's being heard. Seth, welcome back. Ken. Season two. Season two. Happy 2023. Yeah, you know, it was um, a great break. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I was, you know, looking back at the, the numbers, and of course, it was our first try, right, with It's Not Personal, and we yeah. had, you know, a few thousand listeners, uh, lots of comments and feedback, right. uh, a lot of engagement from different folks, different different places, which I was really, uh, really satisfied to hear kind of how it landed, how it resonated. Yeah, I think what's one of the things that's so interesting was the the people from your own company who were like talking about like, oh, that's so cool that I heard you talk about this. And that's really like, it was kind of interesting to to notice the influence you you were able to have across the the company itself yeah it was it was interesting because of course you know we didn't when we had this idea it wasn't really aimed at like you know people i currently work with or people whatever but it's great it's fantastic and it actually uh generated some fantastic conversation um not only within my own team but with folks i honestly coming up that i didn't know that were yeah and i'm actually gonna i'm gonna challenge you on this because i you say that you didn't have any intention of actually influencing across the company but i i suspect you wanted to get, there were some things you wanted to get out there. Well, I mean, I certainly, you know, I shared my own experiences. I, right? I, think, I think there were things that we were talking about that were really important things to talk about that there isn't usually a platform, right? Yeah. There isn't usually a platform. And, th- and this actually gets to the thing we want to talk about. It does. It, it does. And I wanted to share that story because, you know, I really, number one, I really enjoyed um, sitting down and creating space, to your point, to have these conversations around leadership and culture and, you know, kind of teaming and especially coming out of COVID when it's yeah. all different. You know, we, we took so many learnings out of the last several years. And and you really enjoyed being with me. That's what you were going to follow that's, up that's with. That's where it. I was so going to follow gonna, up. Oh, that's where you are going to lead. I always enjoyed And then enjoyed it kind of went co- to this place where I was like, oh, yeah, no, all those things are true. But then it was like you got to hang out with me. And yeah, that was I, really I, nice. I always and enjoy you your hanging out with me. Like that's sort of there. And, and the conversation. And, and as we said, actually, in the original introduction, you know, you and I have known each other for years. Yeah. And we've worked together on, oh, all kinds of things. Uh, with different team and actually but that that takes me back to kind of what setting up you know and thinking about what we covered in the first episodes of it's not personal and thinking about you know there's still more conversation to have and you were at I'm going to tell the story on you but uh, or about you you were at our offices you were at my office (coughs) and you and I were actually talking to another member of the C-suite who was fairly new to the team and we were talking about like, you know, coming out of COVID and, and some things we wanted to do. And, you know, we're all thinking about hybrid and how do we team? And I run a global organization, so they're not all in the same office. And we collaborate differently than we used to. And we use technology differently than we used to. And, and I said, you know, I want to, I really want to build on, take those lessons. I don't want to go back to the way it used to be. Mm, right. I want to take right, those right. lessons. And I said, you know, I recognize that that's uncomfortable for a lot of us that grew up, that are senior executives, leaders, whatever yeah. stage we're on. I said, and what I'm going to do is 
I'm going to use my part of the team to show, not tell, a different way of doing this. Mm-hmm. And we talked a little bit about the detail, and you just you looked at me and you said, that's a really subversive thing to do. Yeah, I think what I said along those lines was I said, that's what I love about you. <laughs> You're a subversive leader. And yeah. you were like offended. I was. I actually was. I was taken aback. I, I had to, like, I paused because I was like, I, I don't, I don't think I like that word. <laughs> you were like, what do you mean by that? <laughs> Subversive. And then I thought about it for a minute, and I, I do want to ask you what you meant by that. But mm. I thought about it for a minute, and I thought about what I meant by it, and I thought, you know what? Yeah. Mm. That is what I wanted. Mm-hmm. So, so explain what you meant in that moment by saying you're you're being a subversive leader. Yeah. So, I, you know, I think that this came from. It wasn't just you're not the only person I accused this of, but like basically, what I started to think about was how do you affect change when you're not the person in charge? Now, I think that there is actually a challenge for the person in charge mm-hmm. to affect change sometimes. Yeah. Because that we talk a lot of times about influence when you're talking to the CEO and the CEO is like, how do I how do I have influence? You know, I, I can meet with the C suite and I can talk to them and we can all agree, but then how do I know that they're actually like cascading that down in a way that that is the way I want it to be? That is a very common problem. We talk about that a lot mm. in in, you know, Harvard Business Review talks about that. There's McKinsey talks about that. Like it's on LinkedIn all over the place. Like that's that's easy. But what I'm interested in is how do you affect change? Not not from the bottom, right? But when you have power, when you have some control, how do I get my like I want I want us to be better. I want us to be to be easier with each other. I mm-hmm. want us to be more in this idea about the hybrid work. You're like, boy, you know, am I really going to be able to convince anybody of this, mm-hmm. right? Or can I just show them how it works, right? Right. And that was what I meant. But like, yeah, you're not asking for permission, right, to show them how it works. You're just like, basically, like, hey, this thing over here. So, anyways, that's subversive in my mind. Yeah, and, and you know, and and the reason, of course, I, I was taken aback for a moment is because so often when you hear it, like it's in political terms or it's in, you know, it comes with a negative connotation. And but I think you you meant this kind of no it's a show not tell kind of approach and actually I googled it I googled the phrase subversive leadership yeah, actually in preparation just just for the audience if you're just joining us Ken is a tech leader so <laughs> right, if so. you're not familiar with what Google is it is a tool it is a tool <laughs> that you it can is a use tool. Uh, <laughs> but I looked it up and it was funny because it was the very first result very first mm-hmm. return. Mm-hmm. And I I wrote it down, so I'm going to read it. It was actually a citation from a professor of educational leadership, Mm. um, Fei Wong. She's a professor. He's a professor? I'm not sure. uh, In Vancouver, in Canada. So the quote was, Subversive leadership is the exercise of subversiveness as a process of influence that strategically challenges and disrupts status quo and resists redresses or bypasses policies and practices that are counterproductive and unjust through ethical decision making. Exactly. So like like when I say when I think of subversive, I th- I don't think of it as necessarily under like sometimes the the negative connotations is like undermining yeah. or dismantling, right? Which is that like going against the status quo. But the idea is that like look, I think I think that 
we could do this a little differently. I think mm-hmm. we could do this a little better. I think we could. There's there's an option here. And do I want to do this through the normal channels, right? Right. Do I want to do this through the normal channels? In which case, we set up a policy. We have lots of committee meetings. We come up with a huge thing. It gets voted on. It gets sort of approved, and then it goes through this thing, and then we implement it. Mm-hmm. But the problem with that is that there's a lot of buy-in you've got to do with that, a lot of convincing, a lot of politics you have to play. And what I love about the way that you were talking about it or the way that you do things or the way that like other leaders that I, I appreciate, leaders who are not necessarily the top of the, 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 the CEO, but they're in the C-suite or they're in the executive level, is you know, they, they do it with a kind of confidence and ease to say, hey, you know what, it could, it could be this way. Mm-hmm. And you do it within your own sphere of power, mm-hmm. right? You're not like, you're not, um, you're not breaking rules, right? No, right? absolutely, right? Because I, I think that would be that would be counterproductive in ways that would create conflict or tension you, within the organization. You may be breaking tacit rules. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about what we mean by tacit. Like, like we're talking about what we mean by these unspoken rules. Like, what? Like, what's an example? Well, I mean, you know, the, I, I've heard the definition of like company culture be uh, defined as kind of the way things, way we do things around here, right? Whether you know, like whether they're written down rules or not. So unwritten rules, unwritten norms yeah. within an organization about decision making, who needs to be invited to what meeting, uh, kind of, you know, how uh, people get together. Right. Who Who's... Whose chair? Who gets to sit in this chair? Yeah, like, exactly. There's usually like, some like rule about like who who sits at the head of the table, who has to like you know be the last one to turn out the lights. Like there's usually just these rules, right? Yeah, and you know I think this this uh, every organization has a culture, right? And I think one of the things that again led in you know that we we talked a lot about in last season was how so many of those norms. I mean, when you're all sitting on Zoom or Teams, like who's sitting in what chair, doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. And so, but the work still got done. Yeah. And so, what has changed over the last few years that has shown us, or what has been highlighted to us that was important to how work got done versus what was just noise? Can, can I try an example? Yeah. That I think is like probably true to the, your example about the hybrid work. So, one example would be um, if if you want to have a meeting, this is probably too obvious, but if you want to have a meeting, everybody needs to be in a room. Yeah, right. That was a just a, a, an unwritten norm right. for so many organizations, including my own. And if you weren't in the room, if for some reason you were remote, what would happen? Well, you were either – a couple of things would happen. Number one, it was more difficult to participate. Yeah. You were often forgotten about. And or even worse, judged. Yes. For not being there, present. So glad you said that. Yeah. You know that. Oh, you were looked down upon for being remote. You know, for yeah. being somewhere else. And it was more difficult. And what did we all learn in the last couple of years? Is that oh no, for many things. I'm not going to say for everything. And don't get me wrong. I don't want to undervalue the um, the the. Well, the value. I don't want to underestimate the value of being in person and having that face-to-face time and building relationships no. and, you know, cutting through some of the, the, the so this this thing that you're doing right now. Yeah, this is what makes this so hard to talk about. It is because yeah. we are so binary. You know, we're as a as a as a, as human beings like we've just evolved. It's like very binary. Like it's either or. 
right? right. Like you're either for it or against it. Yeah. And it's like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. Like there's, there's a, a, um, this, whatever is the status quo became the status quo for some reason. It serves some sort of purpose, but like, the point is, is that like maybe there are situations where the status quo no longer serves the purpose, where the norms don't serve the purpose. Yes. But you've got to be so curious about what the purpose is. Right. Right. And you have to be willing, and this is get to your point, you have to be willing to subvert it. And how do you subvert it? Right. How do you do that? Well, let me give the rest of the context for that story about when you when you accused me of being subversive. What are you saying? Interrupted you? Yeah, you saying? Saying, just, so we're the, starting off pretty feisty this year. The so. setup was, or the setup is, you know, and I think this is. I, I'll, I'll give my own context, but I think this is context that for many folks that are listening will understand. Wherever you sit within an organization, I think this is this is true uh, of many many organizations, not all, you know, but many organizations. So I lead an organization of several hundred people. As a part of an organization, a, a company of lots of thousands of people. My organization, as you mentioned, I, I run technology and innovation and kind of the IT and those kind of things, software. And so I have an organization that my, those hundreds of people are sitting across a dozen or more countries. Yeah. You know, 18 or more time zones. Yeah. Uh, 15 languages. Right. And there, that's a deliberate choice for a reason. Our business operates around the world, um, you know, and, and through the pandemic and lockdown, it became less important to be in the office physically, but mm-hmm. still get the work done. And so we had the opportunity and the flexibility to hire talent where they were, engage talent differently than we did. And we realized many benefits. And I can talk about a couple of those benefits. Right but, there, though, right there, before you get to the talking about them, right yeah. there. That alone was subversive. Well, that was the piece where I said, I want to continue to run the organization this way because of these benefits that we're getting. And I'll, I'll share one benefit. This is just a little factoid for my team. Your mileage may vary. But one of the things I found by hiring people wherever they were, for those of you in technology, you'll recognize this. If you're not in technology, you probably will still recognize this. Turns out there's a gender imbalance in the software industry, in technology industry. It's been a historic problem. There's lots of inputs to it. It's industry-wide. Um, but typically what it meant was, and we were doing a little better than most, but about a f- one in three people in my organization were female. Two in three are male. Uh, I think industry-wide is about one in four. But So we were doing a little bit better. But here's what Say I— Say that again? One in three? One in three. Wow. One in three are female. Wow. And, and like I said, industry-wide, at least in North America and Europe, uh, where I've looked at the data, it's, it's closer to one in four. Wow. And, you, and just to kind of circle back to something we talked about last season, is this is something you actually care very much about. Like, you've, you've been very intentional. Well, I think we all should. Um, no, but you, I'm just saying, again, like you as a leader, you have, a lot yeah, of people we, like spend like lip service to it and say, oh, this is awful. But No, then, we have goals, which is why I think we're doing a little better or had been doing a little better than, than most is because right. this was something we paid attention to and right. we talked about. But here's what I found out during the pandemic, because I had said, I want to continue to hire talent where they are. I want to continue to lean into flexibility. I want to continue to create a consistent employee experience wherever they are, whether they're in the office or not. Mm. And that means opportunities for development, for growth, for engagement, Mm. for contribution, Mm. for impact, et cetera. And I got a little bit of pushback where I was like, no, 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 we all want to go back to the office. And I said, well, 
let me offer you some data. Yeah. I said, oh, fine. And he said, and I said, since 20, January of 2021, uh, so when we were in full lockdown, right, and we were still hiring because we were still growing, but we were hiring differently. We were hiring where the talent was. He said, prior to that, one in three female. After that, 56% female. Holy smokes. Of new hires. Holy smokes. I said, look. Wait, I, that is in like two years? Yeah, it actually stopped my CEO in his tracks when I gave him that data. And I said, that, let me be clear. We did not set out. Obviously, we didn't create a global pandemic to change the gender balance in the software organization. And we didn't set out to address gender balance through this distributed model. But what we found out is that by moving to a distributed model, we did. Do, do you attribute that to anything? I, you know, I, 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 I have my hypotheses. Like, okay. is it causal or correlative? You know, I think that we really have moved increasingly to a more flexible model that allows a better family balance, better, like, you know, I don't spend two hours a day commuting. Uh, back and forth, right, right? So I have more time to, you know, to, you know, to to dedicate to my family or to other uh, priorities, and so I, I think that there's, I mean, there's clearly a correlation. Is there a causal relationship? I think more time will tell, and I need more data. But when I looked at that, and I said, we've gotten, not to mention the fact that, you know, we've we've been able to. Um, Look at other demographic factors, not just gender balance, but move into other geographies, move into other kind yeah. of areas and uh, where there's different demographics for hiring. You know, there, there's just so many benefits. Having said, there's a lot of yeah. trade-offs. There are trade-offs here, but there are so many benefits that I said I want to keep doing this. And that was the moment when I was saying I want to I want to lean into being a distributed organization. I want to continue to build on these practices that we've found have positive impact, and. I know that I'm going to face headwinds from my colleagues or counterparts or peers that want to go back to, quote, unquote, the way we used to do it. And so I just have to do it and show them the benefit. And that's when you accuse me of being subversive. Yeah. So the subversive piece in my mind is not just the fact that you went and did the distributed workforce or that you went and, like, found talented people in different countries or started putting – I think that, the the from my mind, the subversive piece is you – you had this hypothesis, which is that like we could actually, you might be able to find better talent, but you also had a hypothesis that was like, we might be able to find more diverse talent. Yeah. And you um, were able to collect the data, right, to actually show that you were, like blowing the doors off of expectations of what was possible. Everyone was saying, this is impossible. The women yeah. just aren't out there. They just right. don't do technology. It's a STEM problem, whatever. <laughs> and you were like, no, actually, that's not true. Like, look at, look at the data. And here's the thing about that. The, co- the organization as a whole can say, we don't want to do that then. We don't want to do that, but they can't ignore the data. Right. And that's the subversive piece. They, they, could, they would have to actually say, we don't care. Right. 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 And, and, you know, and I think this is, this is, I use the example of talent and a software organization, but I was really thinking about this as, you, as, you know, after you, you, again, threw that word out there and I thought, and you started to say this, like a CEO, you know, can deliver top-down edicts or mm-hmm. the C-suite can get together and agree on top-down procedures and policies, et cetera. There's a cost to that. There, it doesn't always work just because they magically, you know, kind of wave their wand and say this is the new edict. Even in that case, but if you're a leader 
at not the CEO level, or in my case, I'm in the C-suite, but I'm not CEO. Um, I own a part of the, the puzzle, but not the whole puzzle. If you're a director level, if you're a senior manager level, if you're up and coming, there's a lot of areas where you don't have institutional authority to say, I want to go experiment with this. Right. And we're going to make a change. We're going to, right. we're going to shift. And so this is, I think, for so many of us, need to get comfortable or will benefit from getting comfortable with you, you've touched right on it. You've got to be data-driven. It's got to be logical. You've got to be able to stand behind it. By the way, if you made a mistake, you got to own it, right? So I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to correct what I think I heard you just say. Okay. So I don't, think you, I don't think you do those things driven by the data. I think you do those things driven by an intuition. I think that you have to be data-like you have to be data focused. So in other words, like if you're going to do this thing, if you're going to, you say, I think we could do this thing. I think we could hire more diversity and better talent, right? Mm. You, you may not have been able to really prove data-wise that that was going to happen. You, you said, I think it's going to happen. And like you went and did it, but you collected the data. Yeah, well, in and that then, case, I mean, I'll, I'll own it. I said it up front. Like I absolutely, that was not an intended outcome. Right. We had a different intended outcome, which is we had to get work done and we needed to find talent and they weren't coming into the office anyway. So this yes. is an easy way to go. You know, yes. uh, what we found there was with the data, we actually discovered additional benefits that caused us to want to continue to lean in. Okay. So this is what I'm trying to get at is like, I think we, um, let me, let me back up. I think that part of being this kind of a leader, the kind of a leader who can really like, influence an organization from the middle or from some from the side or like be able to change the way we think about things, challenge the status quo in a way that isn't somehow um, aggressive or creates defensiveness within the organization. It creates opportunity, creates like interest, curiosity. Like that kind of a leader usually is operating from some place of real positive interest. Mm. There's like real like Real interest, like I, I, I see a problem, and I know we don't ever, you know, whatever it is. I know, I know we never use this tool that's been hanging on the wall. But why not use that tool? It's hanging on the wall. Like why not use it, right? Yeah, I, you know, I love the way you said that too, is because you know when you when you say something like I'm going to walk into an organization or I've been part of an organization for some time and I want to challenge the status quo. Oh wow! Can that be scary and confrontational right. in the wrong context? Right. And but if you think about it from a positive perspective, the positive and curious perspective, because what organization would not say we're interested in continuous improvement? Well, improvement means change from what we're doing today, right? And so you have to inherently be willing to challenge the status quo, again in a positive and constructive way. So, so what is so sneaky about this is. And this is this is where this is where people I think get this wrong all the time. They'll point at the status quo and they'll be like, "That's wrong." Hmm. You know, we don't have enough women in leadership positions. That's wrong. Well, that may be true, and that maybe need to be said. But if you say that from your position, Ken, if you say that from a position down, if you're a senior director and you say that, guess what? It feels confrontational. You're, you're being confrontational. You're telling everybody, uh, and this is something just, this is for another time. We could talk about this, but you're telling everybody they're the bad guy. Right. 
right? And when you tell people they're the bad guy, guess what? They're not they're not really open usually and being like, oh, tell me more about that. <laughs> how are we not living up to our, you know, how are we not living up to the expectations that you have set out for yourself? Like, that, and I think that's the piece too where it, with this with this whole subversive leader that you, you really got my brain going because I said, look, I'm not saying we were doing it wrong. You know, there were a lot of things we were doing right, but we were missing opportunities. Absolutely. And so what I am saying is that we can do, we can take the good, we can take the positive out of what we've been doing, but we are interested in continuous improvement. And there's always opportunities to try something new and see, you know, if that's going to develop a different outcome. This, this, is, this is so great. This is like um, uh, Branch Rickey. I know you're not a baseball guy, but Branch Rickey <laughs> we covered that was, last season. was the general, manager, yeah, general manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers. And he had this problem. He like was trying to figure out, how do I get... The Brooklyn Dodgers had historically never been able to really – they just couldn't win a World Series. They couldn't get through the playoffs and win the World – playoffs. They couldn't win the division and then get to the World Series enough to and be able to beat the Yankees or whoever. And he had a talent problem, and he needed cheap, good talent. Well, in the 1950s or 1940s, late 1940s, where was their good, cheap baseball talent? was the Negro Leagues. Mm. There was a whole division of baseball, a whole area, a whole pool of talent that wasn't playing Major League Baseball because the assumption was, again, this is status quo, mm. the assumption was that the, the black players, black American players, couldn't handle, could not intellectually or physically handle Major League Baseball, mm. which is absurd, I, right? I mean, it's absurd, looking back at right? Yeah, right? But Branch Rickey was like, yeah, I think that's wrong. And he started to um, make deals and bring them in and say, well, I, you know, because he had more control over the minor league system and he started playing them in the minor league system. And then he's like, I'm going to bring this person in. And Jackie Robinson was one of them. And, and he got the deal when the other owners to be like, I think this guy can play baseball. Let's try it. And the result is, uh, just to skip forwards, because you don't know, the, the Brooklyn <laughs> Dodgers won the, won the World Series in 1955. It was an amazing accomplishment, and they did it with a most with a not majority, but I would say like fifty percent black players. I can't remember exactly how many, but it was a proof of concept. And by nineteen by the nineteen sixties, every team except the Red Sox <laughs> had uh, black players on the team because everybody was like, "Oh, this is like they can play, they can do this thing." It was a very subversive leadership tool to show that you all are are not seeing this opportunity here and that it changed the status quo in baseball it's so interesting too because um you know in hindsight i mean it's obvious right it's, it's obvious right for us right. now well, racism i yeah. mean racism but there was a lot wrong with that system right um but you know these these assumptions uh are just ridiculous and but at the time it was incredibly subversive. Oh, so from so the, you know buck the system, and but he did it in a way. To your point, and I don't remember all the names, but he but from your story, he did it in a way in an area that he controlled. Yes, absolutely. That he could, you know, kind of organize and manage, and incrementally demonstrate the benefit. Absolutely. And then others looked over the, at what was happening over there. And this yeah. is exactly what I was talking about doing right. within, you know, my organization and others. 
others look over and go, oh, wait, you're on to something. Yes. Yes. I mean, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Mm-hmm. Is, is also somebody who, um, this might be a little bit harder to say, like he's he was subversive in the sense that he was using a kind of nonviolent protest that he understood mm. was was going to change the hearts and minds of white America. Mm. That if he could if he could stay clear and he could stay on track and he could get all the other leaders in in the African American community to follow this and in, in, in protest in this way, that it was going to be very hard for the President of the United States and white America to say we we shouldn't care about this. And like that is, um, I mean, if 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 subversive is is too triggering a word or too like confusing a word for people, like just know that I don't mean manipulative, right? I don't mean it's manipulative. I mean it is showing you something that goes against an assumption. Yeah, and let's tie this to, uh, I mean, the you know the 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 arc of the season might be subversive leadership and how that can be a great right. you know demonstrated leadership, but you know the ultimate theme is it's not personal. And I've actually coached people on my team around this kind of approach where, cause I've had, you know, a, I don't know, a project manager, a, a team right. manager or whatever say, I want to change the way we do this, but I keep getting told no, or it's not going to work here. Right. And I said, well, that's, you know, who's telling you that? Well, that, that other project manager over there. I said, okay, what's that have to do with you? Yeah. Right. 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 Can you actually just take your, you don't have to convince them to come along with you. You're talking about doing something different with your team. Oh, yeah. Right? You don't have to sell them on it. You don't have to get approval for them to do that in this case. You know, in some cases, maybe you do. But in in many cases, you don't have to get their approval. They may look at you and judge you. But what's that got to do with you? Oh, but this is so good, Ken, because what happens, right? Like, why do we – so this is why, you know, leadership isn't just title, Right. right. Le- leadership is, in my mind, or, or when we talk about it, it's usually about cultivating some courage within because it is scary. It is. You know, to Can go yeah. and do something different than what your peers or what you see as a status quo, to do it differently because you know it's the right thing or you know it's an opportunity. That's exciting and also terrifying because there's two things that happen. One is um, you you don't have any evidence right you're that that you're going to get support or that it's right or that like that the company itself will be happy with whatever you do and two you you really are on your own psychologically and in in personally and this thing about it's not personal is like you know what if you took your ego out of it right if if it if you didn't have your if you didn't worry about what other people thought of you, which is a big thing to say, right? It's easy to say that. <laughs> if you didn't worry about other people, but that's thought the heart of, you, of this, right? Yeah, absolutely. Like, what could you do? What would you do? That's the heart of it, and that's the coaching I've offered. And I'll I'll I'll, I'll talk about the example and then use it with my own example. But the coaching I offered was, yeah, exactly that. If you weren't worried about what other people were going to say, because remember that person that's saying, "Oh, that's never going to work here," they're probably basing that on their own lived experience. Yes. Right? right. Right. And but your intuition, you used that word earlier, you you might have a few data points, you might have some intuition, or the context might be specific where you think you can try something new. Yeah. You can you can evolve or incrementally, you know, change this and get a different outcome. Yeah. The context is different, the time is different, the talent is different, the project is I don't know. 
But if you weren't worried about what other people were going to say, would you do it? And, you know, I got the answer. Yeah, that's that's what I want to do. It's like, then do it. I think this is so – so that's that's actually like – just so the listeners can understand, like that is what – great managers, great leaders do is that they empower people. We think about empowerment as being like, you got this, right? <laughs> but it's not, right? It's like, it's like you, you want to do what? You want to you wanna set this up differently? And like, all right, go do it. What do you mean? I could just do it? You, yeah. Yeah. Should I ask for permission? Well, only if you want to hear people say no. Right. Right? Like, like well, will you have my back? Yeah, of course. But right. like, make it happen. Well, and and I want to be clear, you know, I don't think either one of us are suggesting go cowboy, go maverick without regard for accountability, right? Because the this flip side of that good manager conversation, and I think we're going to talk about this in another episode, yeah. but is I'll give you the all the empowerment in the world, and then I'm going to hold you accountable for telling me what help you need and for getting it done. But what freedom comes with that? And this was, you know, back to, to my example of saying I want to lean into this distributed organization is I didn't ask, you know, I didn't have to get permission to change that structure. Some, some places you might, right? And there's reasons. But using the data was able to demonstrate that we affected a positive impact. Yeah, right. That would reinforce those decisions. So this comes back to – so you, you were challenging – these terms like status quo, I would just say like assumptions, yeah. assumptions about how the world works. Right. And you were challenging that. But what was interesting about this, what I think is really important for us, you know, when we're, whenever we're thinking about this concept of how do I have influence or how do I subvert something, a status, some assumption, go back to the thing about like, you didn't call everybody out and say like, you think you all are dumb for thinking this, or I think you all are wrong for thinking this. I'm going to show you that you're wrong. I'm going to prove that my theory, my hypothesis is right. That would that would not have worked in your favor. No. Right? That would I mean that sets you up as you said, you know, it's confrontational, it's adversarial. Um, you're not going to bring people along. But there's a thing in here that I want to make sure that we make that we say clearly, which is that the outcomes you were looking for, your intuition based on the hypothesis you had. The outcomes you were looking for were outcomes that actually mattered. Right. Right? It wasn't just like, I think we could do this differently, and then you do it and you're like, see, we could do it differently. And everyone's like, yeah, that's great. But like nothing improved. Right? Right. Nothing actually got better. Yeah. No, I think, I mean, there could have been other uh, data points about kind of, you know, and again, we keep using this talent example. You could use a project, you could use others, you know, but the piece that was so compelling in this that reinforced that we were going to do more of it and challenge the assumptions of the status quo or the way like challenge the assumption that we needed to go back to the way we had always done it yes right was oh there are meaningful measures right. here of progress and positive impact things that we actually wanted things that we care about right right and so finding those i think this is the the, the takeaway, if you're listening, if you want to change, if you're sitting in an organization or in a team and you think there's some change that could or should be uh, tried, is understand what measures of impact are going to meaningfully support your deviation from the assumption. 
And then that's the subversion is you're, sub- you're subverting it again. You're changing. You're challenging the assumption. You're creating a new set of assumptions yeah, totally. based on meaningful measures. Totally. I mean, the example that came to mind, which is a silly example, but I, I, when I was a teenager, um, I, got a, I had a job for a little while where um, it was a funny job. It was a very job for the 80s, which was like, I worked for this couple who flipped houses. All right. They bought like like crappy old houses with like dirt basements. <clears throat> and then he like had us basically a bunch of teenagers, you know, working on it. <laughs> and there's this one house that was a dirt basement and we had to basically dig out the basement because he wanted to be able to make a full basement that he would pour concrete into. So, you know, I, I imagine that at some point what your job would have been would be to fill up buckets and carry the buckets out and pour the buckets into a dump truck. Mm. And somebody, I don't know who this person was, but this person is a genius. Somebody, maybe a hundred years ago, said, why don't we make a conveyor belt? Right. And they just, there was like this engine, like it was like a, you know, a basically it was crappy and it smelled bad, but like this engine, this conveyor belt that went through the basement window and it went into the dumpster. Um, dumpster. Yeah. And you you shovel and you put it on the conveyor belt and it went under the dumpster. It was like the easy. It was. I mean, it wasn't easy. It was a crappy job. It was like <laughs> I was sweaty. It was dirty. It's like. But my point is, is that that's an innovation. Somebody went. I guarantee you that there was some group, some construction company, somebody who like we work hard here. You know, we work hard. We like we have to be strong. We work hard. We don't complain. We never get sick. And like you have to be able to carry two buckets full of dirt if mm. you want to be able to be successful here. And somebody was like, "Yeah, well, what if we just had this, <laughs> right?" And I want you to understand that when you when you the, whoever brought that conveyor belt in, you know, there's a th- that is subversive. Not 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 the conveyor belt that I worked on, but the well maybe it's a hundred years old, but like the, <laughs> the idea being that like the person who came up with that innovation, innovation is oftentimes subverting assumptions about who we are and how we do things. Well, I'll, I'll give you one. I'll give you one kind of uh, relevant example. A conversation I had. I know we're, we used a lot of our time, but I want to share this conversation I had with a colleague. Actually, this was a few years ago too. And I guess in hindsight, this was actually a fairly subversive thing to say. I said, I really like hiring smart, lazy people. Oh, I love that. Oh, my God. I love it. Because, okay, first of all, before you go any further, yeah. name, what, what, did, what did you, what is subversive right away about what you said? Well, hiring lazy people, like no the hiring assumption manager. Is, right. Like the assumption is no hiring manager wants to hire lazy people. And I said, ah, smart, lazy people. Right, it's key, it's kind of uh, to this, because yeah, especially in software and technology, that person is going to figure out how to make it easier to do their job. Yes, and rather than just doing it the way it's always been yes. done. Yeah, I mean, to your example, like, well, I could just keep picking up buckets and walking up the stairs, or I could figure out a way to make it fifty percent easier to get my job done. 
and get the same amount of output and impact for a lot less effort, which, you know, from an organization, from a business, now I have more capacity, maybe I have more profits, maybe I'm faster to market, maybe I've got a better customer experience. Yeah. Smart, lazy people. I want to surround myself with smart, lazy people that are going to yeah. help figure out how to get the job done easier. And again, in hindsight, because I mean, I had this conversation, this was not in my current organization, it was a previous organization, but the CEO and the head of HR is saying this to, they're like, no, that, right. that, that goes against like, no, we want to hire smart, industrious people. And I'm like, no, I want people that are going to really think, be motivated right. to figure out how to make the job easier. What, what, so what's interesting about that characterization of the kind of person you're looking for is that that person, you know, we have an, we have an assumption of what lazy means. Mm. And I don't think that's what you were talking about. No, I would still want somebody who's industrious and wants to get the job done. Who has a done. drive, who wants to like Aft- see things be better, like all ambitious, like, but like you want someone, and this is so great about software engineers, it's true. And, and engineers in general, like you don't really want a software engineer who is like, likes to define their life by working really hard. Right, because that person is going to create a lot of work for herself that isn't necessarily going to be productive. Yeah, or they're, for others, they're, they're going to be like, "Oh, I, I, this isn't. I need to totally like, I'm the code's not ready yet. I need to like go through it. And, like, you're going to make like, we're way behind schedule." Yeah, I had somebody on the team once who's like, well, nine million lines of code," and I'm like, "Well, could you have done it with four? I don't know. Right, exactly. Right. I mean, is that a good exactly. thing? Is that is a that bad a good thing? thing. Like, I love it. Know. I love it. Yes, yes, so, yes, yes. So that I think that is what when we talk about you know great leadership can be very subversive. This is what we're talking about is, is this challenging the assumptions of, of what tomorrow's work or workplace yeah. or organization or inputs needs to be in ways that really move the needle on creating positive impact, making it a better place to work, making it more fun to work. Right. So, so let's, let's talk about this. Let's put this out there to the audience, right? Like, like what are you, when you're listening to this, like what are you seeing? What are you seeing where you see opportunity? You see something where, you know, kind of like Branch Ricky or whatever, you see something that, that could change, something that might make a difference. It could be really small or it could be really big, depending upon your role in the organization. And what could you do about it? Well, and, you know, let's be clear. What we're talking about is not always safe. Mm. But. Right. If you're right. going to be a safe manager, I hesitate to use leader when, you know, pairing it with safe. It can right. be, but um, are you going to be able to create the change that you want? And how do you, and it's a balance. This is not easy. As you said, this is, this can be a little scary, but I, I think it's a great challenge to ask people, yeah. ask leaders. Like what change are you trying to create? And what's that going to, what assumptions is that going to have to challenge? So, so what I love about, you know, and we, we've been talking about this for a while before the podcast, but what I love about this idea of like subversiveness, right, is that there's, you know, sometimes you hear that thing about like agent of change or mm. whatever, or radical, right? Like you're radical, like you're, you're a radical change agent within the organization. That gets all confused, but there is something weird about thinking of yourself as um, somebody who is like, if I were to improve this organization from the, like rather than undermine it and destroy it. Like, right, I'm like a spy right. who's there to undermine <laughs> no. it. But if I were to like be a spy who's here to like improve the organization, but I couldn't 
do it above board because everybody would like shoot me down, right? right? How would I do it? And yeah. I think that the idea is like, what does the organization actually care about? Yeah. What do they say they care about? In what ways are their, their assumptions about what works and what doesn't work getting in the way? Well, th this is such a great way to wrap up our session. Uh, it's been so much fun to sit down and, and, and talk this through again, by the way. Really, I do very much enjoy your company. <laughs> Me too. I enjoy your company too. Uh, but I you know it's such a great way to, to kick off the season talking about, you know, how being in a, being in a leadership position, you know, not at the CEO level, but like in, in these in these different parts of the organization, how you can create change. What would it be if you're going to be, I love your, your metaphor of being a spy within the company sent mm -hmm. there to help improve it without... Right you know, like top-down radical implementation, yeah. but really subversively challenging assumptions, creating new context and assumptions. Because next week, get together, we want to talk about what is my job? Yeah, God, right? Right? Yeah. What what are, as a leader, what is my job? Yeah. And I have some great, you know, examples of kind of where this is. And again, you're going to go back to all the assumptions to go into what is your job. I'm like, what is it you actually do? Yeah. What is it as a leader you're actually responsible for. There's functionally, there's organizationally, yeah, there's right. impact. There's a lot to this that I think mm. leaders don't talk about enough. What is it? My, what's my job? What and, am I here and, for? And I think in that too, we could talk a little bit about like, and in, in how have I over-identified mm. with certain things that might like interfere with what my job really is. Right. 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 Well, I can't wait. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, as always, Seth, it's a pleasure. Ken, um, it's such a pleasure uh, working with you as always. I, I don't know if I told you this, but like my book is coming out this year. Hey, that is I'm, awesome. I got, I finally, it only took me five years. So <laughs> it's, it's only been five year process. You've been very helpful with this process. You've been reading some parts of it and like giving me great feedback on it. And um, anyway, so I just want to let that out there. Like that's, that should be out sometime around the same time as this podcast. That's great. I I have had the privilege of reading some of the drafts along the way and the stories you tell and how you've contextualized it with lots of different industry examples, lots yeah. of different leadership examples. I think uh, I can't wait. I can't yeah. wait to read I'm the book. I'm looking forward. So the title of the book is Into the Wolf, uh, What It Takes to Speak Up and Be Heard. Oh, well. So. It's not Very personal. Related. It's not personal. And this uh, idea of like, you know, what does it take to actually speak up and be heard? They're going to, uh, hopefully they're going to have some synergistic qualities. I think there's a lot of overlap. Yeah. I can't wait to talk more about it. All right. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Seth.